0: You're listening to sermons from Church on Bayshore in Niceville, Florida. Our mission is to do whatever it takes to see people believe in Jesus, belong to God's family, and become who God created them to be, impacting the world for Christ. To learn more about our church and to find additional resources, including ways to connect, serve, and give, visit churchonbayshore.org. Good morning. It's good to see you today. And uh, what a privilege it is to join with you in worship. And thanks to those of you who are visiting us for the first time, or maybe you're watching online for the first time. We're so grateful that you are here with us as our guests. We'd love to know who you are. You can text the word CONNECT. Uh, to the number 850-600-6779. And one of our Connect team members will follow up with you uh, this week. Uh, If you're with us on campus, in addition to that, we have another opportunity to connect at our Discover Bayshore lunch, which is taking place uh, today after the 11 o'clock gathering. So that will be uh, in our fellowship hall. If you don't know where that is, you can just uh, talk to any of our First Impressions team members. They'll direct you to that. There's a free lunch that's Provided, you hear the vision of our church, more about who we are as a church, and have the opportunity to ask questions uh, about our church. Let me also just thank you, church, for your continued generosity. Uh, As we finalize our 2003 numbers, we'll be celebrating in the coming weeks uh, what God has done uh, in our church and how God will use uh, that above uh, budget giving uh, to impact our church, our community, and impact the nations. Um, We have some big events coming up in the next few months as a church. On Sunday night, February 4th, is our annual vision night. That's where we talk about what God has done over the last year and even beyond that. And we look forward to the coming year and the years ahead. And we have some exciting and big things to share and celebrate on Sunday night, February 4th. Uh, So I I hope you'll make plans to be here with us that night. The following Friday night, uh, we are hosting the Tim Tebow Foundation's Night to Shine. Uh, And so uh, there's information about that in the bulletin and on the website. We'd love for as many people to volunteer as possible to help make this a special night for those families uh, that it exists to serve. And so love you to be at that. The end of February is our wholehearted marriage conference. Sean and Christina Stover, who have written books on marriage, have spoken on marriage uh, in many different settings, will be here with us that weekend to pour into us. And so whether you're thinking about getting married, uh, you're thinking about not being married anymore, or you think about how great your marriage has been for 50 years, it'll be a great uh, weekend for you. And while we can get caught up on these big events, uh, one of the things that is most impactful to me are the small, simple moments that we have as a church family. Tonight, as we start off the year, we have our first prayer night of the year. Uh, That'll be at 5 o'clock. We're going to sing some together. And we're going to hear testimonies of what God has done in people's life over the past year. Uh, You'll have the opportunity to share praises, and then we'll pray for one another and and pray for our church. And so I hope you'll make plans to be with us tonight at 5 o'clock. Well, as we begin a new year, we begin a new book of the Bible, Paul's letter to the Philippians. If you've been with us in Ephesians, you can literally just turn the page and you're there in Philippians. Uh, A little background on this letter. Paul is writing to the Christians in Philippi. Philippi was an important city in the Roman province of Macedonia. It was like a miniature Rome. A lot of retired military were in the city, And first first century discoveries reveal that Latin was already the dominant language. And so Greek had been the prevalent language uh, in the region, and obviously its influence was pretty widespread. In fact, that's why most of the New Testament is written in Greek. But as Rome uh, rose to power, uh, Latin would become the dominant language in the area, still having an impact on uh, languages today. And so... uh, That had already happened in this region in the first century. The Via Ignatia, linking Italy with Asia, ran through Philippi. Paul traveled through there on his way to Jerusalem. If you read Acts chapter 16, you see that Paul did not want to go through Philippi, but had a vision and ended up following God's leading there, where he would lead Lydia to the Lord, and where after commanding an evil spirit to come out of a slave girl, he would then be thrown in prison. An earthquake happened. He and Silas would lead the jailer to the Lord, and because of their impact, they would eventually be thrown out of the city. Several years later, he writes this letter to the believers there in Philippi. There is debate on when exactly and where exactly Paul is writing this, the leading options being when he was in Ephesus, when he was in Rome, and when he was in the Roman region of Caesarea. I think it is Rome because there's references to Caesar's house and because Timothy is with him, but I understand the other theories. Paul does include Timothy in this greeting. The naming of an additional sender was rare in their day Paul referenced Timothy not only here, but in six of his letters, Ephesians, 2 Corinthians, Colossians, First and 2 Thessalonians, and Philemon. This does not mean that Timothy is a co-author. The letter is actually in the first person 10 times to 1. But the inclusion of Timothy in this letter reinforces one of the major themes, cooperation. What is clear is that Paul writes to encourage the Philippians. A.T. Robertson said that joy is the keynote of Philippians. He begins the letter by discussing that joy and where that joy comes from and how that defines us. This is why we have titled our series in chapters 1 and 2, Our Brand. Your brand is the image and impression people have when they think of you when you scroll, you quickly see companies, organizations, and individuals that are working to establish or re-establish their brand so that they will be known for what they desire to be known for. Companies hire teams to keep their brand fresh and relevant and untarnished. People have made careers on social media with a personal brand. Someone's brand might be political. Philosophical, financial, physical, and so forth. For the Christian, Christ is our brand. We are living for Christ because we have eternal life given to us by Christ. Paul says this right in the middle of the passages we will be looking at over the next few months during this series. And if you don't learn anything over the next few months, I hope you learn this verse. Philippians 1.21. For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. You probably noticed that Paul didn't just say, for me to live is Christ. He also said, to die is gain. This statement summarizes the distinction of the Christian's life and the Christian's view of joy. In some form or fashion, everyone is pursuing joy. The U.S. Declaration of Independence says, all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's because the founders of our nation recognized what just about everyone recognizes, that there are certain things that everyone has an intrinsic desire for. And so we ought to protect those things, life, freedom, and the pursuit of happiness or joy. But Christian joy is distinctive. And Christian joy is rooted in Christ so for the Christian we believe to die is gain and therefore since death is gain and that is because of Christ to live is Christ and this becomes stays or deepens as our brand because of the relationships that we have that encourage that, that foster that. And what we see at the beginning of Philippians is an example of this. We see a joyful partnership. By looking at Paul's greeting in the first few verses of Philippians, we see a guide to this kind of partnership. So we will look at three characteristics displayed by Paul that we should embody to deepen our joy and to foster joy in others. So I'll read Philippians chapter 1, verse 1 through 6. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, I ask that you bless the reading of your word. And God, I pray that you would remove me, and that you would not make this about me. You would make this about you, You make this about what you have to say to our hearts that our hearts would be receptive to what your word has to say what you desire and that we would truly be different from our time together today and i pray this in jesus name amen the first characteristic that is displayed by paul in this greeting is humility look closer at verse one and two it says paul and timothy servants of christ jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here you can see Paul's view of himself in relationship to others and his view of himself and others in relationship to God. And I believe those two things, those two ways of looking at life are key to humility. We'll begin with The fact that humility is grounded in your view of yourself in relationship to others. Humility is grounded in your view of your relationship to others. Your view of yourself in relationship to others. Now, there are four terms here that are descriptive and instructive for us. First, notice that Paul calls he and Timothy servants. Like most places, Philippi had a large slave population. Up to 85 to 90% of Rome and Italy were of slave origin. So either you had been a slave or your parents were slaves. And the readers of this would have heard the emphasis of humility and submission to Christ with Paul using the word servant to describe he and Timothy. Paul identifies himself as a servant, as one who has a master as one who has obligation to someone with authority. And not only does Paul identify himself in this way, but for all we know, Paul lived as a servant. From what we gather, from what we see in Scripture and history, Paul lived as a servant. Now, secondly, notice that Paul refers to the recipients of this letter as saints. But there in verse 1, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which is the Greek word hagios, meaning holy ones. When you think of sainthood, you probably think of dead people holding big hats or wearing big hats, holding up their hands in a portrait. Catholic sainthood started to honor those who were martyred, which is not altogether bad, but it quickly got out of whack. And so they put together rules for uh, who would be a saint. And then different popes changed those rules over the years. So originally you just had to be a martyr, and then it changed over the time. And so if you, you could kind of make a case for like whether or not somebody would be good in the NBA still because the rules have changed. You could make that same case for the debating of saints today, legitimately, because it's based on man-made rules. But once you pass the test of your day... Churches, schools, and festivals could be named after you, and loosely religious people could get drunk on your birthday. This is where a lot of people get their idea of what it would mean to be a saint. But the question is, what does the Bible say that it takes to be a saint? Are you in Christ Jesus? If you are in Christ Jesus you are a saint. You are set apart. The apostle Paul says to all the saints, Paul is saying there is no one who's set apart aside from Jesus. And he is the one who sets us all apart. This included the Gentiles. I want you to think about Paul and his ego Built upon persecuting those who were opposed to Judaism. And now he says, these Gentiles, they're saints. We're on the same level. The third and fourth term used by or terms used by Paul in his greeting are the offices of overseers and deacons. You see it there at the end of verse one. Overseers were those who God had called to shepherd the church to the teaching ministry of the church, to leadership of the church. And deacons were those who God had called to serve alongside the overseers and to meet needs of the church so that the teaching ministry of the church would not be inhibited. It is noteworthy that Paul addresses this letter to all the Philippians along with the overseers and deacons. So they are included, but they are not given priority. They are important, but they are not primary. See, what Paul is establishing here is the priesthood of the believer. God does not speak through other people to the saints. He speaks directly to the saints. Ministry is a partnership of all who are in Christ Jesus. It is a shared vision. I think I should read First Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 through 7. And there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth and I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. There's one God and there's one go between man and God. And that's Jesus. There is no man or woman who is set apart that you must go to, to confess your sins or to get here from God. Not that God doesn't speak through other believers, not that God doesn't call other believers to certain roles, but the reality is all of us who are in Christ Jesus, our saints, have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us and have the same access to God. Everyone has the same access to God, which only comes through Jesus Christ. Everyone has the same access to God, which only comes through Jesus Christ. And here we see the Apostle Paul understanding he's equal with every person who's in Christ Jesus, creating this great humility about himself and about his role in the kingdom of God. But not only is humility grounded in your view of yourself and relationship to others, humility is grounded in your view of everyone in relationship to God. Paul says in verse 2, grace and peace to you in his greeting, as he would commonly do in his writing. This is what he desired for the Philippians. Grace, that's the unmerited favor of God. Grace is how we're saved. It is by grace through faith, not our works. Our faith is not a work. Our faith is trusting in the work of Christ. We are saved because Christ has done the work of making us righteous. Because Christ lived the sinless life and Christ was willing to die for our sins so that we could be made right with God. That's how we're saved. But grace doesn't stop at that moment we're saved. Grace is our life. It's the grace of God continuing to abound and grow and change and move in our life. And that's what Paul desires for the Philippians. He also says peace. Peace, I've said, is that deeply rooted feeling that I'm going to be all right. I believe peace is active and it's passive. It's active in the sense that we have peace to say I'm going to be okay if I'm generous. I'm going to be okay if I give my time. I'm going to be okay if I step out of my comfort zone. I have a peace in being active for the Lord, but it's also passive. When circumstances around us are beyond our control, it's knowing that we've already won. It's knowing who the battle belongs to, and it's having peace. And Paul wants that for the Philippians. But notice where Paul says that this grace and this peace comes from. He says, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not arbitrary grace and peace. This is specific grace and peace. God our Father. He is our Father. And as Jesus taught us to pray, holy is his name. He is set apart. He has authority. He has not left His character to be defined by us, but he has defined who he is. And that holy, authoritative God loves us. He loves us. God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is Lord. They lived in an emperor dominated society. There was worship of Emperor Augustus as well. And the accusation against Paul and his companions after leaving Philippi and entering Thessalonica was that they said there was another king besides Caesar. You could be killed for saying that Jesus was Lord in their day. And part of Jesus' accusation was that he had said he was the king of the Jews. But Romans 10 verse 9 says, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. It takes this for salvation to believe that Jesus is Lord. I think I'm way ahead of you guys in the tech booth. Jesus is Lord. Some of you, you have thought that salvation was praying a prayer one time and saying, God, I invite you to come along in my life and help me give me the life I want. But salvation is the recognition that the life we want to give ourselves leads to death. And we're hopeless. We're hopeless without Christ Jesus. And Christ's compassion towards us is that in our hopelessness, in fact, while we were still enemies with God, God demonstrated his love towards us and sending Christ Jesus To be sacrificed, to die for our sins, to be the punishment that we deserve, so that if we had faith that that was the gift of God for us, we would be made righteous. And therefore, He deserves all the credit for our righteousness. And therefore, He needs to be the Lord of our life. And maybe the tension in your life and the issue in your life is that you haven't said, Hey, you're the Lord, you're the boss, you're the master. And that's the only position that he should be in. He does not want to be an accomplice to your life where you serve as God. He is God our Father, and he is the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we really have grasped that, that makes us incredibly humble because we view everyone with that recognition and we view ourselves uh, compared to everyone with the recognition that we don't deserve anything they don't deserve, no matter how much we accomplish. So there's this humility. The second, and I I gotta get moving, is gratitude. Paul had unpleasant memories of Philippi if he cared to dwell upon them. But here is how Paul remembered them. Look at verse three through five. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. We see from this text that Paul has a joyful heart about the Philippians, even though there would be reasons to look back on that time and not have those positive feelings. And so I I just wanna look at two thoughts here about how to be like this. One is this, a prayerful person develops a joyful heart. A prayerful person develops a joyful heart. Paul said he is thinking God always in every prayer of his for them. Now, Mark Cowan said that it's not so much hyperbolic as reflective of his persistent practice, that Paul always was praying and he would spend lots of time in prayer. Now, I'll I'll confess with you that this has been one of the great struggles of, of my life as a believer to really prioritize prayer in times of prayer. And here's why. Because I got so much to do. I mean, I have a job, ministry, they're the same for me. Um, I have a family. I need to take care of myself physically, mentally, emotionally, all those things. And so spending time praying, you know, when there's only, I don't have enough hours in the day anyway, is challenging. But Martin Luther once said, I have so much work to do today that I cannot get through it with less than three hours of prayer. He understood. And these greats of the faith understood if God was really leading us to do incredible, great, significant things for him, that meant we need to depend on him more. And we need to be intentional about asking him for help, and to yield our hearts to his. F.B. Meyer on prayer says, we must not wait until high tide to set off on our voyage. We cannot wait until the time is right to prioritize prayer because I believe there will always be a reason and excuse for us not to do this because if we're thinking about spiritual warfare, the enemy does not want us praying to God and asking God for help. And so God has given us this life, and He's called us to live this life, and we need to be depending on Him for guidance. I think about my kids often, and you know the things that they are, are to do in life, and a lot of that has been instructed and told to them by their parents, and yet they often begin to do that without any regard for us at all. And whenever they finally come to me and Christy and act like we might know a thing or two, uh, it brings great delight to me, and I want to help them. But when I'm tempted to get frustrated with them, um, They're over here, so that's why I'm doing that. When I'm tempted to get frustrated with them, I remember me and God and how often I don't turn to him and the life that he's given me to live for him. And and, and as we will see, as we keep reading in the coming weeks, this letter demonstrates that Paul embodies gladness during suffering and wants the same for his converts. Christian joy, is distinctive. Because we don't find our joy in the same way that the world defines joy. Now, we aren't against pleasure. I had a friend who not that long ago finally found out I was the pastor of this church. And he was like, oh yeah, you're one of them that they're against having fun, right? I'm like, no. But a lot of what the world is doing is medicating with fun, and we can define that however we want, to avoid real pain. And, and I think our world doesn't know how to suffer. At least our culture doesn't know how to really deal with suffering and pain. And I've noticed even amongst Christians, like, we don't talk about that anymore. And you just want to go to a sermon, and you just want to hear an encouraging sermon, and you don't want to really deal with the reality of the suffering in this world. Listen, it's January 7th, okay? So if you can't count, that's seven days into this year. And I've already talked to someone who has lost a family member, who's found out they're probably going to get divorced, and who's had a child that's beginning to rebel. It's real. No matter how much you medicate, no matter how much you try to hide it. And Christians... We have this joy in the midst of that. St. Cyprian wrote that it's a really bad world in a personal letter, an incredibly bad world. Yet in the midst of it, I have found a quiet and holy people. They have discovered a joy which is a thousand times better than any pleasure of this sinful life. They are a despised and persecuted people, but they care not. These people are the Christians. And I am one of them. Tony Merida says that you can have nothing but possess everything if you have Jesus. And there is a great joy that comes when we recognize how truly satisfying Christ is. And even though I don't want to admit it because I don't want this to happen to me or to you, the reality is in the most difficult moments where it felt like there was nothing besides Jesus have been the moments where I have felt the most satisfied because what God is trying to show us is he is what really satisfies our soul. He is what we were created for, for all of eternity. He will be what exists. He is what we are promised. And God wants us to recognize that truth John Piper says that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. When we recognize that he is where our joy comes from, he is what satisfies our soul, it brings great glory to him. It strengthens us and it strengthens others. And our prayer should be that this would be true of us and others. And if we are praying for that, it will develop in us a joyful heart. And the second thing here is there is a deep joy that comes from being partners and living for Christ. He says, because of your partnership in the gospel. That word partnership indicates a two-sided relationship. The imagery that would come up in their mind when they heard that would be of two people who bought a boat together to start a fishing business. That's what they would think of when they thought of that word partnership or fellowship as you might hear it. D.A. Carson says the heart of true fellowship is self-sacrificing conformity to a shared vision. Now here's what I think we need to be cautious of. The awareness or temptation to stop short of Christ-centered fellowship. Because when In Acts chapter two, when they talk about the early church and they talk about fellowship, it says the fellowship. There's an article there, the fellowship. So the koinonia, the partnership. Christ is at the center of Christian fellowship. Christ is at the center of Christian fellowship. Not sports, not career advancement, not recreation, not gossip, not even food. Look, watch the national championship tomorrow. Most of us don't have a team in it in the South, but watch it. Love your job. Golf. Play pickleball. Be careful with the knees. Go out to eat somewhere healthy if it's with me this year. But these things are the accessory. They're not the center. And we could just hang out and even play church and there'd be no real transformation if Christ isn't at the center of Christian fellowship. Again, I want to confess something to you that around this time of the year is when all the church growth marketers hit pastoral staffs heavy. So we're getting the emails every day. Hey, hey, you do this and your church attendance will double. Hey, you know, you change your music, you do these kind of programs. I mean, we could sell you on how to grow your church. And that's, I delete those emails, okay? Um, Sorry if I accidentally deleted yours with a suggestion, but it was because I thought it was that. Um, Email me again. Uh, But I'll tell you what's louder to me is that even within our own congregation and our community, as a driven person, I'm constantly hearing people say, hey, if we would do this, it would bring about growth. And over here, they're doing this, and, 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 and it's more fun. And I've, I've seen churches begin to say, hey, we're going we're gonna to do this. And so we're going to have connect groups. And most of those groups actually aren't going to study the Bible. They're just going to be about an interest. Um, and we're going to have big events, and they're going to be fun, and they're going to draw crowds of people. And, you know, everybody will think it's great. And even on Sunday morning, we're going to create experiences so that people feel good. And look, I'm not saying that we can't learn from some of these things that we're talking about. And as a church, we're trying to figure out like, okay, what does God want us to do? And, and we recognize like there's even facility needs now and we need to become better organized as a staff. But listen, here's what I want people to think about when they think about our church. Man, they love Jesus. And they love me. And I don't want them to connect simply with a group of people who share a sports interest. I want them to know that the God who created them has come to the world to connect with them and loves them. And so I'm not saying that we don't, we throw all that stuff out, but our partnership, our fellowship is Christ centered. It says in Acts 2, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. We, if it's Christ fellowship, this has to be central to what we're doing. He says to the breaking of bread and prayer, the remembrance of who Christ is. We as a church are taking communion on the first Sunday of the year, and we're going to start doing that once a month, either on a morning or night, because we want to remind ourselves of who Christ is as he told us to do and what he's done for us. It's a partnership in the gospel. Okay, last thing here from this text that I think Paul displays, he displays humility, he displays gratitude, and he displays confidence. Paul says in verse 6, and I am sure of this, confidence is what he's saying, that he, that's God, he's talking about God, our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, he who began a good work in you Jesus started the work in you. There's debate about how men are saved, but Jesus started the work in us. It's a good work in you. And the longer we live, the sure we are that the beginning of the good work must be attributed to God. And God who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. He is perfecting you. He is sanctifying you. God, Mark DeBand says, brings to completion any good work that he begins in you. Kent Hughes, in his commentary on Philippians, says As I reflect on my 50 plus years in Christ, it is indeed God who has kept me. It is not my grip on God that has made the difference, but his grip on me. I am not confident in my goodness. I am not confident in my character. I'm not confident in my history. I'm not confident in my persona. I'm not confident in my perseverance, but I am confident in God. True joy comes from our faith in an ever-present, all-knowing, all-powerful God who proves himself over and over. True joy comes from our faith in an ever-present, all-knowing, all-powerful God who proves himself over and over. And Paul says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So while we hope that God will put an end to our pain on earth now or soon. We know that the wars in the Holy Land, the tension on the borders, the fight for the sanctity of life, the sickness which hinders us, the mourning which lingers over us, the anguish which torments us, the people who oppose us, the unmet expectations, which disappoint us, the world of selfishness, which discourages us, and our sins, which so easily entangle us, will be finished on the day of Jesus Christ. And we know because when our Savior hung on the cross, he said, it is finished. The lyrics to one of my favorite worship songs by Vertical Worship, yes I will, go like this. I count on one thing. The same God that never fails will not fail me now. You won't fail me now. In the waiting, the same God who's never late is working all things out. You're working all things out. Oh, yes, I will lift you high in the lowest valley. Yes, I will bless your name. Oh, yes, I will sing for joy when my heart is heavy. All my days. Oh, yes, I will. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And that is why we can say with confidence, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's a fitting way to start our year and to close the sermon by taking communion together. I'll ask our deacons who uh, are willing to serve the elements of communion to come forward at this time. And as we prepare to take communion, I remind you that if you're here and you haven't placed your faith in Jesus Christ, this is an opportunity for you just to pass the plate. You won't be the only one. And to really examine your heart and ask, why haven't I come to that place where I've placed my faith in Jesus Christ? And maybe today to recognize that I'm hopeless without him. But what we're doing is we're remembering that we have all the hope in the world because of him. Because he came so that we who were sinners would be reconciled to God. And anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And if you would confess that you need him as your Lord and Savior today, he will save you. For those of us who are the people of God, this is a reminder to live as Christ and to die as gain because for Christ, to live was death for our gain. And that's why we can say that. And maybe just this morning, someone's struggling, there's pain. And if God did not spare his own son, how will he not with him also graciously give us all things? May this remind you that he completes his work in us. And that there will be a day at the day of Jesus Christ where our momentary affliction will not be worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us in Christ Jesus. And so as our deacons pass uh, the elements now, ask that you would hold them so we can take communion together, and you would ask God to work and examine your heart and lay anything that's entangling you at his feet. Now, Jesus, help us in this moment to be still, to know that you are God, to know that you are with us in the person of Jesus Christ and God to just commit our lives to embody living as Christ and dying as gain. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.